Well, a very good morning to you again. It's lovely to be back with you at this morning service from St. Peter's Free Church. My name is Hamish Snedden. I've just come up the road again from St. Andrews, and it's a great joy to be with you as we carry on working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We've come to this beloved passage. It really is a wonderful section of Jesus's teaching designed to reassure and to strengthen disciples in the middle of an anxious world while we await his return. It's been great to have it read to us. We've heard God's word already. Uh, Why don't I pray again though and ask for God's help as we now consider it together. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for this chance to gather digitally together, to be gathered by you under your word and to hear it. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us, that you would strengthen us and enable us, we pray, to take Jesus at his word today. Help us to hear the voice of our King, our Shepherd, and our Brother, and to know what it is to not be anxious, but rather to seek first his kingdom, your kingdom, and your righteousness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, anxiety is, of course, a major human emotion. It's something I'm very conscious that as you listen in, wherever you are in the world, and indeed in Scotland or in Dundee, it'll be something that you're familiar with yourself. In fact, it will affect so many of us that it's very hard to quantify. I mean, we can speak of anxiety with what we might call a a small a. The worries and fears and uncertainties are the threats we experience in our day-to-day life from the small to the great things. Temperamentally, some are able to manage with those anxieties better than others, and there's no shame in that. Some can find such things very difficult. On the whole, though, that's something everybody lives with. There is then what we might call anxiety with a capital A, a medical condition that affects our mental health, that impacts life in a significant fashion. I did a little bit of reading of some of the statistics, and they are very sobering when it comes to anxiety. One in six adults will suffer with what's called generalized anxiety disorder. When you talk about undergraduate students or or high school students, that starts getting on for for one in four people. There are rising numbers of young folk all the way down to to very young school ages who are knowing what it is to experience anxiety. It is a real and crippling issue, and one that wherever you are in our world's history or geography, you're going to be able to relate with. It's especially widespread, actually, in our current climate. Uh, One headline I read said that in a pandemic anxiety is endemic. And that certainly would be borne out by the the sheer volume of articles I found dealing with anxiety in Western and Eastern newspapers and websites, uh, from the global to the national to the local. Any number of tips and techniques are out there for coping with it. But actually, wherever you look, we have to be really honest. There is no magic bullet to deal with the scourge of anxiety. And most of the things, in fact, I might say almost all of the things our world would offer are merely anesthetics. At best, they mask the pain that we might feel. And there is a lot of pain to mask, isn't there? Uh, Just in the the group of folk who are going to be tuning into this, either live or on the recording, uh, there are going to be money worries, which are the first thing that that is in Jesus' view here as he speaks. There will be health worries, there will be life worries. And wherever you are on the spectrum of what is is causing you anxiety and how severe that anxiety is, you'll be able, I think, to empathize with this description uh, from someone I read. You know that feeling, they say, when you're rocking on the back legs of your chair and suddenly for just a split second you think you're about to fall, that feeling in your chest? 
Imagine that split-second feeling being frozen in time and lodged in your chest for minutes and for hours and for days. And imagine with it that sense of impending doom and dread sticking around too, but sometimes you don't even know why. Maybe that only one person listening, although I guess more, can really empathize with that. And to you, and to anyone, even if you're listening to this anxiety stuff with a certain detached, gosh, I, I really don't know what that's about. To whoever is listening today, Jesus offers another way. He does not deny those real issues of real anxiety, but rather he lovingly commands us not to worry about them because he is pointing us to a better way. He's not telling us to stick our fingers in our ears, uh, nor to become escapists, nor in the first instance necessarily even to medicate, though for some medication is going to be a good and necessary part of dealing with anxiety. No, what he does, as he's done throughout this whole sermon, is call us to live in the light of who God is and who we are in relation to God. And we've seen from the beginning of chapter 5 through that God is the, the living God who listens. We saw that in the Lord's Prayer a couple of weeks ago. We see today that he is the loving father who provides and he is the righteous God who rules. As we jump into the text now, I want to invite you to do something that is perhaps a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I'd like you to consider something that is causing you anxiety right now in your life. And as we go through Please try, and above all prayerfully with the Spirit's help, beyond just listening to this sermon, to apply these truths directly to that situation. The nature of God's word is such that in its living and active power, it penetrates right to our very souls. But we need each other, and we need to think ourselves about exactly how that will mesh. I I can't possibly speak into every scenario in, in detail today. And yet my prayer is that these words of Jesus would be truly transformative for you, for me, for all of God's people who engage with them in every one of our lived realities. So with that in mind, let's dive in to the text. Look down with me again, if you would, at chapter 6, verse 25, and we'll see Jesus' first command. He says, don't be anxious about life. Look around you. Let me reread verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Now, it's so important that we realize this is not Jesus being some sort of unsympathetic drill sergeant or or a matron from some private school novel. Jesus isn't saying, stop worrying, pull yourself together, pull your socks up, stiffen your upper lip and get on with it. No, this is Jesus applying to his disciples what he's just been teaching them about money. We saw last week that the disciple is to be one who single-mindedly, single-heartedly serves God and not money. You could see that in verse 24. And a direct outflow of that single-minded devotion is that they are not to be those who worry about the things that money brings, food and clothing. Jesus goes from our treasure to that which comes downstream of our treasure, what we might just call our stuff. And Jesus says, look, don't worry about it. And far from Jesus being unsympathetic here, 
This is him as the wise and loving, good and great shepherd of our souls, of real human souls. Jesus knew what it was himself to wonder about where he would lay his head and what he would wear and what he would eat. Jesus is speaking to those who did not know necessarily where their next meal was coming from. Uh, For his initial band of brothers, they were men from humble backgrounds, most of them. And for many of our brothers and sisters listening to this and around the world today, that also is the case, that there are genuine questions about whether there will be enough to put food on the table whether there will be enough in the bank balance to get on with the basics of life. There'll be others listening, though, for whom the opposite is true, that the issue is not having too little of the things of this world, but having too much and yet craving more and more. You may be listening, not worrying about whether you will have those full stop, but whether you're going to have the right amount according to your own terms. And it's worth recapitulating what we said last time that anxiety over the things of this earth can come in want or in plenty. You can have loads humanly and still be consumed by anxiety. You can have nothing humanly and rest content in that which God has given you. A deep anxiety over money, whether we have it or not, shows that it has too great a hold on us, not first and foremost whether we have much of a hold on it. And Jesus says the antidote to this type of money worry, whether you've got loads or little, begins by looking around you because he wants to grind a basic truth deep into our hearts and minds. First, he invites us to get out our binoculars, a bit like David Attenborough, and look at the birds of the air. And as we look at them, and the word look means really consider them, not just glance at them as we might do when we hear the bird song, but really study them. Well, what do we notice? Well, we see a marked lack of agriculture amongst the birds of the air. Look at verse 26. Look at them. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You know, birds haven't discovered the secret of rotating the the crops they grow in their fields. They're not worried about the depth of the plough as it goes over the soil. They're not asking questions about topsoil or fertilizer or maximizing their crop yield. That They're not careless things that they are clearly thinking about barns and how to build stuff to store their crops properly. All they're worried about are their nests. I mean, who ever heard of such a thing, you might say? In our context, humans in the 21st century, we could say that the birds don't have bank balances. They don't have ices. They don't have investment bonds. They don't have portfolios. And yet, what does Jesus say? Your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You see, as the disciple studies the birds, there's the truth that is to be ground in. You have a father in heaven who loves you, and you have a father in heaven who will provide exactly what you need. You see, as the disciple prays to the father for daily bread in the Lord's prayer, so we remember that that God who listens is the living and loving God who provides now. Are you, are we, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, those made in God's image, are are we not of more value than they are? Absolutely is the implied answer. And Jesus goes on to apply it even further. Which of you, he says, verse 27, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Answer, none. I mean, we can lessen our life through worry, certainly. 
But Jesus says gently, tenderly, don't. Your father knows what you need. He lives and he loves you. And he will give you the food that you need. Jesus then says, right, put the binoculars away and get out the the magnifying glass. Having looked at the birds of the heaven, now, verse 28, he says, consider the lilies of the field. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, the phrase lilies of the field is a familiar one, but we might wonder what it means. Simply, Jesus is speaking of field flowers generally, the sort of things you would just see blooming higgledy-piggledy as you go for a walk out in the countryside. In our own climate, in the, in the hedges in the fields, you'd see daffodils or snowdrops, bluebells, elderflower, daisies, dandelions, sorrel, poppies, depending on the season. They're the, the common plants that are growing wild wherever you go. And Jesus says, look at those Consider them again, just like you did with the birds. And so I decided to take Jesus at his word. I did uh, just this. I considered the daisies, uh, the the flowers that were growing in our own little field, as it were, our small patch of garden down in St. Andrews. They're so common. uh, They're so pretty in a day-to-day sort of way. But really beyond seeing them as kind of fodder for jewelry that my daughters might make, I'd never really thought to look at them. Scientifically, it turns out, you could say that a daisy is a perennial herbaceous plant with short creeping rhizomes and rosettes of small rounded or spoon-shaped leaves that grow flat to the ground. That's one way, pretty clinical way, of describing them. Another is to say that the daisy looks like a sun surrounded by a halo of brightness, such that a field of daisies looks like a, a miniature constellation glittering down there in the green. Geoffrey Chaucer called the daisy the eye of the day. I prefer that description to the scientific one. I, I picked one from our garden and looked at it. There's a lovely yellow center, a bit crinkled, like lots of tennis balls strung together. There are beautiful, fine white petals around it, almost like a a butterfly's wing. There were 52 on the one I picked alone. Now that one is sitting crumpled and dry on my desk. The rest of them are in the brown bin because we cut the grass. And perhaps the brown bin is the equivalent of what Jesus speaks of when he says that uh, these grasses are thrown into the oven in verse 30. They're things that were being used for fuel. Jesus' point is that beautiful, though the lilies, lilies of the field are, they are passing. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And even they, verse 29, outstrip the most magnificent king, Israel ever had. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. This is the king in whose reign, we're told back in the Old Testament, silver was considered as nothing. So wealthy were his courts with gold and precious jewels. And the most common or garden daisy that blooms and then is cut down, that is more of a miracle of God's provision than Solomon's clothes despite the daisy's total absence of industrial activity. How much more then will God clothe his people? Are you not of more value than a flower, Jesus might ask? And again, the answer is, of course. And so the first antidote to anxiety, Jesus says, is to trust God rather than be anxious. Trust in the loving provision 
of your Father in heaven. You see, it's so easy, isn't it, to be governed by fear, to to look at what we have or don't have, to look at the world around us, and to be anxious about whether we're going to have enough. But Jesus lovingly rebukes his disciples here. End of verse 30, O you of little faith. It's a phrase he uses four times throughout Matthew's gospel. Always before he acts or speaks in such a way that shows that he is the object of faith rather than the fear in front of his disciples. And so to start working away at our anxiety, we must remember, we must know, we must trust in the God who is in heaven as revealed by Jesus. He is our Father. He's the one Jesus has pointed us to all through the Sermon on the Mount. And as we grow in confidence in him, so our anxiety will be driven out. For to know the living, loving, providing God in heaven who gives everything that his children need for this life is to not be anxious. Now I'm really conscious as I say this, that it can sound very hard. The natures of the struggles that you are facing as you listen to this It may well, in fact, make these words seem impossible, a bit like the queen in Alice in Wonderland who believes seven impossible things before breakfast. I mean, how can I trust God, you might say, when it's not food I'm worried about, but my child? When it's not clothes I'm concerned for, but my livelihood? When it's not money that is the issue, but mental health? But I take it that all of us, whatever our situation, can take Jesus at his word. We can take him at his word literally. We can try and get outside and and look around ourselves, listen to the birdsong, and remember that God loves you more than them. An object lesson everywhere we turn in the Father's care. We can look at the flowers when we see them. And we can ask God to help us to remember that he loves us more than them. And so we can remember that he will give us everything that we need And I know that that will be different sometimes to what we want or desire. And when we doubt, we know he will do so because he has already given us the greatest gift that he can. And speaking very personally, if I may, when I am tempted or or driven to doubt the loving provision of the Father for me and for my family, I must remember the one saying these words, Here is the son of the father, the one with whom God is well pleased. He's the object of the love of all of heaven and creation. And he is the one who has come to tell us truly who God is. He's the one who came in flesh and blood to give his flesh and blood. That we might know who God is. That we might be God's children. And so as we enjoy the presence of the son with us by his spirit... Even in our doubts and anxieties, we can know that God the Father is for us. Because of what he did for us through and in Jesus Christ, we are able to constantly, daily, sometimes even hour by hour and minute by minute, remind ourselves of his character. As it were, applying the blood of Jesus to our wounds of worry in this world. So can it be trite? When someone says to you in your anxieties, God loves you, well, of course it can be trite if it's done glibly or flatly. But you know, it is always true. God loves you. 
If you are one trusting in Jesus Christ, he loves you as his precious child and he will provide for you. So don't be anxious about life, Jesus says. Look around and see the testimony of the father's loving provision. That isn't though all he says, is it? He, he goes further. And verse 31 drives his teaching home all the way to that which we are living for in this world. You'll notice with me in verse 31 that there is another therefore that Jesus uses and a repeat of the command to not be anxious. That signals a, another movement in the symphony, as it were. And this time he says, don't be anxious about life. Look to God. I wonder if you've ever had a situation in life where through fear and panic, you've ended up pursuing, chasing after totally the wrong thing. Uh, I remember one with, with one of my children where they woke in the middle of the night after a, a particularly bad nightmare. I'd love to say that this was a sort of one-off occurrence with only one member of my family, but, but that would not be true. Any, any parent would empathize, I think. This one was notable, though, for the fact that not only were they out of their bed, but they were trying to climb into the cupboard in their bedroom in order to get away from the bad dream that they were having. And in that instance, not only did I need to reassure them of my presence and my love, but I needed to redirect them back to bed, point them in the right direction so that they knew where they were going. And so it is here with Jesus. Not only does he reassure us of the Father's love and provision for us, but he, he takes the compass of our minds and hearts and sets them back to true north, uh, setting the ship of our lives en route to a safe harbour. Because in verse 31, the, the constant churning of the sort of hamster wheel of anxiety, well, that can lead to us chasing after the wrong things in life. And that's what he says the Gentiles are doing. Do not be anxious, saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Gentiles here are those who are not in God's kingdom, those who are not part of God's people, those who do not call God Father. Back in verse 7, the Christian was not to pray like them, thinking they could arm wrestle God with the sheer volume of their words. Here now... The Christian is not to live for what they live for. I think verse 32 is such a, an accurate yet concise description of our world, isn't it? School children, students, adults, older folk, so many are consumed with chasing after the things of this world, food and drink and clothing. So many are storing up treasures here, verse 19, so they worry about whether they have enough things here on this earth. And so they seek after those things. But then the more they chase after those things, the more they're not sure they have enough of them. And, and so round and round it goes until the heart is bound to them. And the more you worry, the more you chase. And the more you chase, the more you don't get. And the more you don't get, the more you worry. Well, that cycle is broken, do you see, through knowing God as Father. The end of verse 32, yes, the Gentiles seek after those things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Food, drink, clothing, they're necessary. They're good. Again, Jesus isn't saying become a sort of hermit who spurns everything in the world. But he does say, remember who God is and remember who you are. His point put really concisely is that the Christian person is not to live functionally as an atheist. 
We're not to live as though there is no God. We're not to live as though there is no Father. No, we must live as those who have a Father in heaven. And so primarily, in first place, we should not chase after the things of this world. No, you see, there is to be a chief treasure, a prime goal, something that orients our lives before the things of this world. And it's there in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I love this because it is a staggeringly simple verse. There are no hidden traps, no secret knowledge, just a clear statement of priority and promise. Yet one that if we take it seriously will rewrite our lives. For here, Jesus says, is the true antidote to anxiety. And it is to pursue as the goal that then sets the angles on everything else, God's kingdom and God's righteousness. You see, the living God who listens, the loving God who provides, is the righteous God who rules. It's why the whole sermon, the whole gospel, is bound up with his kingdom and righteousness. We're to understand ourselves in relation to him, to hunger and thirst for his righteousness, because those who do so are the blessed ones who inherit the kingdom, Jesus has said. And God's people, who are God's children, who are called to be perfect as their father is perfect, whose, whose righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because it's from the inside out, Well, those disciples, us with God's help, are to be those whose hearts are burningly directed towards God, his priorities, his purposes in the world, such that everything, our relationships, our money, and the things we have from our money, are governed and guided by him. And Jesus says that if we pursue God himself as our true north, well, then we can know that all of these things, all of these material needs will be added to us. So if the call from the the world around us was to trust, the call now from Jesus is to pursue, to actively pursue God's kingdom and righteousness and to know the strengthening promise of the Son. You see, here he's calling us to, with every fiber of our beings, not just our minds, not just our our spoken priorities, but that which governs our hearts, to set them on God and his kingdom. And I hope we can feel and enjoy the strengthening promise of Jesus here, that all of these things will be added to us. It's not a prosperity gospel. I mean, Jesus isn't saying do the right thing. And you're going to get luxury food and clothing and drink. No, the promise is of a daily bread. A sufficient amount of what we need. Whatever God in his fatherly will has ordained for you, he will give. Such that you might do his will in your life. So that we as churches might do his will in our midst. Some have much. Some have little. But we trust that God the Father gives what we need in his good care to pursue his kingdom. Let me invite you to to think again of that 
issue causing you anxiety with which we began. I want to ask then what this might look like in in really concrete, practical terms for you. A few questions maybe to talk about together as we move to a close and to anchor our thinking. You see, our pursuit of God's kingdom and righteousness will show itself in how we pray. What is it that you're praying for in that which is causing you anxiety? What is your deepest prayer for your kids? What's your highest prayer for your career? What's your most profound secret prayer for your retirement? At whatever stage of life you find yourself at, what is it that you are praying for? Secondly, how are you making your decisions? That which you're going to study, that which you're going to pursue, that which you're going to put time and money and energy towards, is the supreme question, how can I serve God and pursue his righteousness? Or is it a more earthbound or self-centered one? Final one, and one that, that presses upon me as I think of my family and friends. What do I think, what do I believe those around me most need? As I look at the world in which I move, as I look at the neighbors amongst whom I live, as I look at the, the family who I love, do I believe that what they need above all is to know God as their father, for, for them to pursue his kingdom and righteousness? Or if, if I think that they need something else other than him, or well, maybe then my priorities are not rightly aligned. You see, in all that causes us anxiety, we can look to him and set ourselves at what he has placed before us. Verse 34 caps it off beautifully. Jesus, the pastor, finishing his teaching on anxiety with real wisdom. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Uh, The unknown breeds anxiety, doesn't it? We're not sure what will come around the bend, even of the night. And Jesus says, look, just don't go there. Because when you stretch that out into the future, that worry becomes paralyzing. Rather, there is enough today to worry about. There's enough today to get on with. There's enough today to apply the truths of Jesus into the anxieties of the present. So even today, this Sunday, this Lord's Day, with whatever unfolds in front of you, what's it going to look like for you as an individual, as a family, as a household, as part of a church, what's it going to look like for you to pursue God's kingdom in your words and deeds today? What's it going to look like for you to pursue his righteousness today? And then when you wake up tomorrow at the start of the working week, you can ask yourself that again and again and again, all the way through until Jesus returns. Let's pray that he'd help us to do so. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the wonderful practicality of your word, for the wonderful grace and love of Jesus, and for your wonderful care, your provision, your love for us as your people. Help us to trust you, remembering that you live, that you listen, that you love. Help us to pursue your kingdom and righteousness with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. And until the day that he returns, or calls us home, help us to be those who in word and in thought and in deed seek first your kingdom and righteousness, that we might not worry, but rather we might serve you faithfully.
For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.